We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. All right, so yesterday I got to officiate a quinceanera. Has anyone ever been to a quinceanera? I don't even know what that is. Exactly, right? So, do you know what it is? What is it, Wish? Yes, exactly, yeah. In the Hispanic culture, when a young girl in particular turns 15 years old, right? So, quince, 15. And then quinceanera comes from años. So, it's a girl turning 15 years old. It's a huge moment of her life where she's transitioning from being a child into a young woman, right? And so, there's a huge celebration, and it really is like going to a wedding if you've never been to one before, minus the groom because who needs that guy, right? But everything else, it's extravagant. Like, they're all dressed up. She has this gorgeous dress on. And one of the things that happens is she's presented with gifts. Now, not just like any birthday party gifts. Those happen too. But during the ceremony part, there's a whole ceremony that I, as a pastor, got to be a part of and, and pray over her and, and share a short little message. And so, but in that ceremony, she has like her her abuelo and abuela, that's her grandma and grandpa, right? She has her, her tios and her tias, her aunts and uncles, and her nino and her nina, which I was like, hey, nino, nino and nina is little boy, little girl. But apparently it's also nino, nina, without the enye. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's the godparents. And so that was my brother and his wife were the godparents. That's why I was there. Uh, they also, so all of them are presenting these gifts that are very significant. They mean something. So one of them, for example, was a necklace. And as her aunt put the necklace around her, she said, we said that this signifies how God's love circles around her. One of them was a watch. And as they presented her with this watch, we said that this signifies that everything happens on God's timing. And this is a reminder to wait on the Lord, not to be impatient with our timing, right? And so all of these have a deep significance. One of them was a teddy bear which was cute. And it was kind of like her last like, little kid present, right? But it was signifying that she is now transitioning. She's, she's kind of leaving behind these childish things and transitioning into becoming an adult. And so all these things, if you just kind of gave them to her without any explanation at all, you would have been like, oh, that's a thoughtful gift, I guess. And then the bear would have been really weird because 15-year-old having a teddy bear, right? But when you explain them and when you look at the deeper meaning, it's all pointing to something much bigger. Kind of like, oh, actually, here, I want to play a little game with you guys. Do we have the slides working for the? Okay, I'm going to play a little game. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put some shadows on the screen, and just looking at the shadow, I want you to try to guess what it is, okay? What is the shadow pointing us to? So here's this first one right here. What is this? Yeah, it's a bucket and a shovel. Yes, for the beach, exactly. So this is what you would take to the beach, and you'd be digging into the, some sand, putting it in the bucket, flipping it over, building a little sand castle out of it, right? How could you tell that's what that was? Because you've seen it. You've seen it before, yeah. It's kind of obvious. You know those shapes, they're familiar to you, right? Okay, let's go to the next one. What's this? Sonic. Sonic the Hedgehog, right? Yeah. That one's pretty, pretty obvious, right? Everyone knows that shape right there, the hair. You know, you're not missing much. It's all right. The cartoon's better. Video game's way better. That's what my hair used to look like before I lost it all. Uh, let's try the next one. What's this one? A man's shadow. 
Yeah, that's a person walking down the street, right? Which person? Me? Are you sure? You don't know which person it is, right? It's not me, actually. It's not me. So we can tell that that is obviously a person walking down the street. Uh, most people said it's probably a man. Some people said it's probably me. It's not me. So we don't know who exactly it is, but we can tell some kind of person there. I got one more for you, okay? Here's one more. What's this? Yeah. This one's tricky, right? Because is it a bird or a butterfly? But if you get more specific, it's someone's hand, right? Making a shadow puppet that looks like a bird or a butterfly, maybe. Right? It's not my. So it's not actually this winged creature, right? So not only are those not hands, they're the shadow of hands. And then not only is it not a butterfly, it's hands making the shape of, of a butterfly. What it's doing is it's, it's creating a picture that makes you think of a butterfly, right? It's creating a picture that makes you think of something else, even though it's not that thing. And that's kind of what Melchizedek is in the story today. Melchizedek is a really mysterious figure. We don't actually know much about him. He's only mentioned two times in all of the Old Testament. And then suddenly the author of Hebrews is writing a ton about this person, but not so much really about that person. He's using that person and the little bit that they knew about him to say, this is actually pointing us to something else. It's an image to help make you think of something much bigger, something much more significant. And so Melchizedek is a picture that makes us see what? Any guesses? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, if you don't know, just say Jesus, right? You're probably going to be right. And it is. You're right. It's pointing us to Jesus. And so I want to share a little bit about how Melchizedek does that. In order to do that, we have to go way back in the beginning of the story, okay? And we have to understand what's going on in the story of the world before Melchizedek even enters it in Genesis 14. So at the very beginning of all things, when God creates all things, he speaks the whole world into existence, he uses his own hands to form a person. And he forms this human being to be kind of like that picture we just saw, a picture of something greater. This human was formed in the image of God himself. And so the man was not God, right? And he was not a God but he was a picture of what the creator God is like to the rest of the world, to the rest of creation. And he forms both male and female this way. And so he takes out of the side of the man he just formed and he forms a woman as well. And both of these, male and female, were made to reflect what God is like to the rest of creation that he made. And in their role to show what God's like, to be this picture of something greater, they were given two things. They were given both rule and authority over everything God made. They had authority over everything on that earth. And they were also tasked to care for it and show it what the creator's like. Now, we have words for that now that weren't given back then, okay? Those words could be today king or queen and priest. 
So they had a kingly authority rule over all of creation. And what a priest does is a priest helps mediate. That means be like a a bridge, a connection almost between two parties. A priest mediates between humans and God. That's what their role is supposed to be. And so as two people made in the image of God to be a picture of them, they were these priests to the rest of creation, helping to show the rest of the world, the animals, all the creatures, even their children that would come after them, one another to show all of creation, this is what God is like. And so they were meant to be both kings and priests together. Now, yeah, king and queen and king, queen and priests together, royal priests. Now, they, they failed at that, right? And you guys know a lot of the story. They rebel against God. They decide, no, no, we, we don't need to wait on God and his timing to show us what's good. We can decide for ourselves what's right in our own way. And so instead of being an image of something better, they tried to become that something better in their own strength and their own power. And that did not go well, did it? And so everything started to fall apart. Now, eventually, God comes to this man. I'm going to fast forward in this story. God comes to this man named Moses. And God comes to Moses during a time, if you remember, when a bunch of people are being enslaved by another nation. And it happens to be the people, Moses' people, happen to be the people that God said, okay, if everybody is turned away from me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to select one people group, not just so they will be saved, but so that they will become a whole nation of priests that they will then be mediators so that the other nations, all the people of the world, would see what I'm like and would come back to me. And so Moses is part of this people. He's part of that family. And this people group, they become enslaved by Egypt for 400 years. So God comes to Moses one day. He says, hey, listen, I want you to go and I want you to tell the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, to let my people go free. And I want you to bring them into a land that I will show you. And it's going to be a good land It's going to be flowing with all kinds of stuff that you need. Like everything you can need, it's there. And it's going to be really good. And Moses says, sure, God, I'll do that. Wait, is that what Moses says? No. 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 In fact, several times over and over again, Moses says, no, I'm good. No, thanks, God. Not me. He has a reason every time. I, I can't do this. No one's going to listen to me. Who am I going to tell them sent me? What, what name do I give them for, for this God? Uh, they, they aren't going to listen to me because I'm not even a good speaker. And at that point, God finally, he's been patient with him the whole time. He's been patient the whole time. And then when Moses says, I'm not a good speaker, God says, listen, Moses, you can do this because I will be with you. I'm going with you. And so he's, he's telling Moses, you're not doing this on your own, in your own power like all your ancestors before you tried to do. I will be with you and it will succeed. And then Moses, running out of excuses, just flat out says, God, send somebody else. And then the story tells us that God actually gets angry. He'd been very patient the whole time. He kept coming back with like, well, here's how we'll get through this excuse and here's how we'll get through this excuse. And when Moses just refuses, God gets angry. And listen, He doesn't get angry because he's impatient and he doesn't get angry because he's mean. He gets angry because Moses is refusing to be the thing that God created him to be and it breaks God's heart. 
And yet God still does not give up on Moses or all of his people. So he tells them, okay, fine. And he makes a concession. That means he says, here's what we're gonna do, Moses. Your brother, I know he's a good speaker. People will listen to him. He can go with you. His brother's name is Aaron. And this is why this is important. Moses ends up becoming the leader of God's people, Israel. Aaron ends up becoming the priest of God's people, Israel. And now this role that the, the, the role that the first two humans were supposed to have held together, being royal priests, becomes split apart in two. It wasn't supposed to be that way. God called Moses to do this work. And because Moses refused to be what God called him to be, God says, okay, we'll, we'll make this work anyway. And he allows his brother to do this alongside him. So now you have the ruler and the priest separate, two different entities. And all of Aaron's children become what is now called the Levitical priesthood. That's what we read about in Hebrews. It, it becomes out of this family from the tribe of a man named Levi. And all of them who are born through that, those are the people who get to be the priests. And they don't do a very good job of it. In fact, Aaron didn't do a very good job of it. And Moses even failed in his job of ruling. And eventually, even though they are not very good at this, God still allows them to get free from Egypt. He allows them to come into the land he promised them. And he allows them to become a whole nation of people with a king. And David, probably their best king that they ever had, ends up writing this one day. So in Psalm 110, he writes this Psalm. He says, at the very beginning of it, he says, this is the Lord God saying this to my Lord, lowercase l. So what he's saying is, even though he's the king over the whole nation, he's saying that there will be another king greater than him. And God is saying this of that person. And at the end, he says this. He says, the Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back to this new king. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. So what he's saying there is now even the king of Israel, he's saying he's longing for the kingship and the priesthood to come back together. He's saying there's a better king coming who will also be a priest to the people. And that's important. And he, re he remembers that there is a story of a man named Melchizedek who kind of showed what that's like. He gave us a picture of it. So, Melchizedek, who in the world is this man? It's a very short story. Go with me to Genesis 14. As you're turning there, there's a man named Abraham. This is where Moses and his people came from. When God first decided, I'm gonna set one nation who will then listen to me and be a priesthood to all the other nations, they will bring all the rest of the world in to see what I'm like and how good I am. He started with one human. His name was Abram at the time. He changed it to Abraham. And so Abraham, God told him that he would bless him and he would, he would give him a land. He would give him a people. And Abraham didn't really believe him at times, kind of like Moses. But overall, for the most part, he said, I, I think God is telling the truth about this. And so for the most part with his life, he was willing to leave everything he ever knew behind and follow after God. Well, he had someone with him. He had, he had a relative named Lot. This was his nephew. You remember Lot? So Lot, at one point, he decides to leave Abraham and, and go kind of build his own thing in another land. And he's living in this land called Sodom. And then what happens is there's a huge war that breaks out. 
So five kings get together and they decide we're going to take on these four kings and their armies and we're going to take what they have. And they, they get into this fight and actually it was the four kings that end up being the five kings. Anyway, Sodom is one of those kingdoms that loses everything. And Lot and his family get captured. And so Abraham hears about this and he goes on a rescue mission. He's like, I'm going to go get my nephew back. I'm going to save him. But he makes an oath. If I go and I rescue him and I get all the things back for those kings, I will not take any of their stuff. I don't want them to say that they blessed me. God told me he's going to bless me. I'm going to trust that the blessing will come from God. So I'm going to get all their stuff and I'm going to give it right back to them. I just want my family to be safe. And so he goes and he gets all of his men and his family and they do it. Why? Because God is with him. The same thing that Moses was afraid of, like how in the world am I supposed to go to Pharaoh, to this one king and tell him to set our people free? I can't do it, God. And God's like, yes, you can. I'm with you. Well, Abraham believed that in this moment. I can go take on these kingdoms, four different kingdoms, because God is with me. And so he goes and he's successful and he rescues them. But imagine after, like, have you guys ever played uh, sport before? Who's played sports in here? Like basketball, football, soccer. You know, like I used to love when I played soccer as a kid at the end, they'd have those orange slices for you and Capri Suns. That was the best because why? Because you're, you're hungry and you're thirsty and you're tired and you're hot, right? And so you're just like, I was just waiting for those snacks afterward. Like many of you are waiting for the potluck after this, right? So imagine going into a huge battle and he's really tired and he's been beaten up a little bit and he's hungry and he's thirsty and he's probably hot because they're in a desert. But he's not, he's refusing to eat any of the stuff he just got back for those kings. And that's where we start at Genesis 14. Can we put that up on the screen? This is a really short story here. Genesis 14. After Abram returned from defeating Chedorlaomer, that sounds like a burger somewhere, right? That's going to be at a... Uh, in and out, they're going to have the Cheddar Lemur. This is a king. After defeating him and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram in the Shevev Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, he was not part of that war. He was none of those nine kings mentioned. He comes out. He brought out bread and wine. That's interesting. He was a priest to God most high. He blessed him, Abram, and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has handed over your enemies to you. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's the only story we have of Melchizedek. But there's a lot of really fascinating things happening here. One thing is, we don't know where Melchizedek came from. Like where, he, he, we don't hear anything about his family or his genealogy. We don't hear anything about why he worships God. When we we're, seem to be told that it seems like Abraham and his family are God's people. So how does this guy, a king of Salem, out of nowhere, and he's not only a king, he's also a priest of God. Now, his name means, Melchizedek means, my king is righteousness. And he's also the king of Salem, which means, it's, a, it's another phrase of shalom, which means peace. So he's a king of righteousness and he's a king of peace. He's a king over a whole nation and he's a priest of God. 
all these things together like they're supposed to be, but we haven't seen that anywhere else in the story yet. This place, Salem, it ends up being what is later called Jerusalem. Have you guys heard of Jerusalem before? What's important about Jerusalem? Yeah, Jesus was there. Jerusalem's important about Jerusalem. Yeah, good. <laughs> Jerusalem is where King David decided to make the capital of their whole nation, of all of Israel. So when, when David wrote that thing, hey, there's going to be a better king one day who's a priest like Melchizedek, he was writing it in Jerusalem where Melchizedek was the king. So this is the place where God's people would end up being later on. This is the place that God promised for his people to live in. And it's a place where the blessing comes out of. So you have all these weird things going on. Like if you were to play connect the dots right now, if we were to draw that out, I would try to think of like, what would be a cool image? And I could print that off for you guys, but I couldn't do it. If, if you had all these different dots and you were connecting them, here's some dots to connect. Melchizedek, we don't know where he came from and we never heard a story about him dying. And so that's why the author of Hebrews poetically says he lives on forever. He had no beginning, no end. Connect that dot to who else has no beginning and no end. God. Yeah. Melchizedek, he was both a king and a priest. Who did God create to be royal priests in the beginning? Humans, right? Melchizedek, his, his name meant my king is righteousness. Whose righteousness are we told that we need in order to get close to God? We need Jesus's righteousness, don't we? Melchizedek was the king of peace, Salem. Who is also called the prince of peace in the Bible? Jesus, right? We're connecting all these dots. Melchizedek, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything he had. Later on, all the priests that come from Aaron, the people of Israel would come and they would give them a tenth of everything they had in order to help care for them because they were working the temples all the time. So you connect that dot. Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth, but then all of Abraham's descendants are giving a tenth to their priests later on too, right? And even the ones who are receiving the tenth, they came from Abraham. So at one point, they first gave a tenth to a greater priest, all these dots start to connect. And what we see is there's a picture of something happening earlier on in the story that's actually pointing us to something much greater and deeper and more significant. Now, there's been people who have said, like, we don't know who Melchizedek is. And there's all these connections. So maybe Melchizedek was like Jesus before he was Jesus, right? But there's nowhere in the Bible that says that that's the case. He seems to be a regular man. God was using, kind of like that little shadow puppet, he was using something much smaller to show a picture of something much greater. And when you shine the light on it and it casts a shadow, you see a picture of the one who is the better king and priest. Jesus, who comes as God most high. Remember, we're told Melchizedek's a priest of God most high. Jesus is God most high himself, come in the form of a man. But he also becomes exactly what humans were supposed to be, a king and a priest together. And as Jesus now, being our priest and our ruler, we can fully trust that he's done everything we need to do to bring us close to God. Remember, that's what a priest does. He's our mediator that brings us to God. 
So what the priests used to have to do from Aaron is they would make animal sacrifices so that people's sins could be forgiven and they could enter the temple. And in Hebrews, it tells us Jesus doesn't have to do that. Why? Why doesn't Jesus have to make these sacrifices over and over again? Do you guys know? I'll read it for us real quick, okay? At the end of chapter seven, this is what it tells us. This, verse 26, this is the kind of priest we need. One who's holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sin. He's exalted above the heavens. None of Aaron's descendants could have been this. It says this, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as the other high priests did. First for their own sins. Why doesn't Jesus have to make a sacrifice for his own sins? He never ever sinned, right? He's God, he's perfect. He never has to make those sacrifices. And then they had to make sacrifices for the people. Now, why doesn't Jesus have to make any other sacrifices for the people? Yeah, good job, Alsatia. Because Jesus himself became the sacrifice. Not only the priest who makes the sacrifice, but the very sacrifice himself. Jesus, the most high God, came to be what humans were supposed to be in the very beginning, and we failed at it. And then Jesus reunites the role of what humanity is supposed to be, having the authority of God as his representatives and being mediators, priests, to show the rest of the world how good God is. Jesus does that perfectly. And then he makes a sacrifice as our priest, giving his own life. Now that death has been made, sacrifice has been paid, we can actually approach God. I'm not talking to you, Siri. (laughs) We can come to, but that was a good... Thanks for alerting me that it's time to end this. (laughs) We can now come to God because Jesus has made the sacrifice. And listen, the sacrifice lives forever. That's what's crazy. When the priest would sacrifice an animal, no animal ever came back to life, did it? When the priests got old and they eventually died, they never came back to life, did they? Jesus is a sacrifice and the priest and then he got up out of that grave. So we have a living sacrifice and a living priest who forever sits at God's right hand in ruling authority and says, these ones who trusted me, they can come to you. He always mediates for us forever. We can always approach God, the most high who created all things because Jesus has become our sacrifice and our priest. And so in chapter eight, he says, listen, This is the main point of what I'm saying. We have that kind of high priest that we need. He's already come for us. His name is Jesus. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. He's a minister in the sanctuary on our behalf eternally. There's a lot of things we try to do to try to get close to God. There's a lot of things we try to do to be right before God. There's a lot of things we do when we make mistakes that make us feel like, Maybe we can't come to God. Maybe God's not happy with us. Maybe he would be ashamed of me. What we just heard right here is that we have a priest who has made a sacrifice already on our behalf and you do not have to do anything else except for trust that. Trust in Jesus to be your way to God and he has already done it for you. Amen? Let's pray.